Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chloe Rogis, and I'm the Digital Engagement Director here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're celebrating Palm Sunday and going deeper into our Easter series. Specifically, we'll be acknowledging the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Jesus stepped down from heaven and experienced every sort of infliction and difficulty man will ever face on earth. Though he was perfect, he bore the weight of every last sin any of us have committed and are going to commit. The cross bridged the divide, but it came at a price. Now let's dive into scripture together as we give thanks to our just and loving God. Who is this Jesus? He claimed to be the savior, the one the world had been waiting for. His arrival was celebrated, but then everything changed. He was rejected, despised, tortured, crucified, buried in a tomb. Yet in this act, the work was revealed. The promise was fulfilled. He defeated death, rose from the grave, and the world would never be the same. Who is this Jesus? He is who he said he is. He is our savior, our hope, and he is alive. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. Happy Palm Sunday. If you came in this morning and somehow missed the fact that we have communion elements at the entrances and at our welcome tables, don't hesitate to kind of hop up now and slip over to the back or right even up here to the front. I doubt anybody would do that, and I totally understand. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. Everyone will know that you forgot to get it. It's totally okay. There's also a basket in the back of the balcony, but we do have one that's at the back of the room, and you're welcome just to grab that really quickly to prepare for later in the service when we would enjoy a time of worship through um, the act of communion together. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. It's where we've been during this whole series, and you've got some time to get there if you're pulling it up on your mobile device. And I'll just say at this moment, if you're somebody in the room and you don't have a Bible that's in a modern English translation that you can understand, nobody in here expects you to understand what they're talking about on the Great British Bake Off. And so if you've got some kind of old English Bible at home and you just need something more modern that you can relate to, let us know. I would love to put one in your hands to take home with you um, so that you can have it and so that you can read it. Like we don't go Sunday to Sunday without eating any other day between. So I don't want this to be the only day of the week that you open up God's word and that you get to sit at the table and feast on what it says. Um, And so if somehow or another you get home and and your cupboard is bare, let us help with that. Um, You've got some time this morning to turn to Mark 15. And as you do, I'll tell you a story about something that happened to me last week that I'm preparing for next week. I am feverishly awaiting a new pair of glasses to come in. This is my old pair. The new ones are going to arrive pretty soon. And the prescription is the same, but this next pair is different. Now, there's no pressure next week to notice because they're about the same kind of frame as I've got going on right now. But something is going to be very different about these glasses. They are my first pair of progressives. Some of you are looking at me and you're like, my pastor knows me. You feel so seen right now. Like you get it because you've been there. You understand it. And you're so happy that I'm ta- like, I'm just acknowledging who you are today. And some of you are too young to know what that is. And that's okay. 
um, you will one day. And so we'll just save you a seat on the progressive bus because it's a whole different kind of lens. Now, maybe you know back in the day that you looked at a pair of glasses and inside of it, you could see this crazy little eye shape of another pair of lenses inside of it. Well, now they're so cool that you apparently don't even notice, right? And I talked to my eye doctor a couple years ago about why this was happening. Why all of a sudden, even with my glasses on, in order to read something, I was having to go like this. And he was like, welcome to your 40s, kid. And I was like, thank you, son. Okay, so we sat back for a minute, and he explained a little bit. It's not that your prescription changes. Your prescription can change, and that's why you go to the eye doctor repeatedly to find out if there's something that's different that you need to be tested for, and then they put those drops in it and make sure that you can't drive home, and then you get the really weird sunglasses. Like, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes the puff of air is what gets me, y'all. It's terrifying, and like, even when I know it's coming, I just have this freak-out moment. Well, progressive lenses aren't because your prescription has changed. It's because your muscles have weakened, Right? And so it's this idea, like, your muscles used to move so quickly to focus between things that were far away and things that were close up that you never even noticed it. It's like putting a camera up and having the lens that you adjust. It happens so quickly for us in our youth that we don't even know it's happening. But the older you get, can I get an amen, the weaker the muscles become. And it takes a while for them to adjust to different depths. Some of us came to Christ in an instant, and and there was almost no noticeable change. Like, literally, we heard about Jesus, we believed in Jesus, and made a decision to follow Jesus, and you couldn't even see that somebody was focusing a lens in your life. And for others, it takes a while. And for others, maybe even some that are in this room today, you've literally, you've heard the story and you've seen the text and you've been invited to the table, but something about the picture of the gospel of Jesus still seems a little bit fuzzy and you're just not quite yet to that point of visualization where you can see so clearly who God is and what Jesus did. You're still adjusting. And there's a perception today that I'm praying that God would use this text and this moment to zero in on your life to where you are able to see crystal clear, perfectly outlined what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the chance to be in this place, to gather together, to open your word, and to examine what it says. And Father, we pray that today you would help those of us who have not yet seen what it means to see it so clearly. And that you would help those of us who have have seen it to see it again and to celebrate what it means in our lives. Because God, you're good. We tell you today that we love you and we want to see you. And we know that by the power of your word and the work of your spirit, we might get a glimpse of who you are and why you came and what it means. Amen. It's not foreign to any of us that companies and people, maybe even families, have a vision statement for their lives. And you can look at what some of the really popular ones are, and you know who we're talking about. If, if, if it was an airline that wants to become the world's most loved, most flown, and most profitable airline, you know that that's Southwest and that they're killing it in a lot of ways. You know that if it says to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete, an athlete has an asterisk beside it and underneath it says, by the way, if you have a body, you are an athlete. That's the vision statement for Nike. You know this one, we save people money so that they can live better. 
That's Walmart's goal, y'all. That's what they want to do. They want to save us money so that we can live better. Jesus didn't come on the scene and say to the crowds, hey, gather around, and I want to tell you my vision statement. I want to tell you my mission statement. But you can surmise from the things that he said and the things that he did that there was one coming on the scene. And it can pretty easily be summed up in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. He's making his way towards Jerusalem, towards the Passover feast and the celebration of this important holiday with his disciples. And he makes a pit stop through a town, and as he's walking through it, there's a short guy who wants to see him. You know, his name is Zacchaeus, and he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord. He, he wanted to see Jesus, and Jesus invites him to come down, and then Jesus does what you and I are not necessarily comfortable doing. He invites him over to Zacchaeus. Like, I don't want to invite myself to other people's houses, but if you want to have me over, you can invite me. Well, Jesus invites himself to go into the home of this despicable tax collector man, and the crowd is just indignant at this moment, and then Jesus says these words, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if you were to go back, and we're not talking about that today because I told you to turn to Mark 15 and not Luke 19, so I don't want to get you sidetracked for a minute, but if you were to look up that word lost, it's not lost like car keys. It's not lost like a kid who runs in the turnstiles at the Walmart or the amusement park. It's lost that means destroyed. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's not those of us who wandered away it's those of us who were thrown away and there's a difference that's who Jesus came to seek and that's who Jesus came to save he sums up that moment in Luke chapter 19 with a parable he always spoke in parables and then he immediately goes and tells his disciples it's time to go make preparations for the Passover we're going in for the holy week of celebrations in the city of Jerusalem he gives them instructions to go and find a donkey that's tied up and to bring it in And Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate today, on a donkey, in all humility. And the people are waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can read about this in all of the Gospels. And it's the fulfillment of a specific prophecy because even what Jesus did in humility was always part of a strategy to fulfill Old Testament prophecy to proclaim to the world that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he yet humble and mounted on a donkey. And and so the people are waving the palm branches and throwing shade on the Romans. Oh yeah, Jesus about to overthrow Rome. He's on a donkey, but that's just a trick. He's about to mount up this crazy army. Here we go. And by the following morning, if they didn't realize it then, they surely would have realized it now. If his ministry and his teaching were not already indication enough What he did in the temple should have been their biggest clue yet. That Jesus wasn't coming to Jerusalem to rally an army. He was coming there to purify his people. So he goes in and he sees the money changers in the court of the Gentiles. The the people who were keeping everybody on the outside, who only wanted to see what was going on on the inside and have an opportunity and an invitation to worship God. And he was so sickened by what they were doing that he, he walked in and he turned over the tables and destroyed the methods of the money changers in that moment and people like oh we like that Jesus we like manly I'm about to tear this place up Jesus we like the the masculine side of Jesus defending the honor of his father's house Jesus and ultimately what we see is a broken Jesus 
who doesn't want people who are far away to be kept on the outside, but for them to be invited to, to have access to God. The next day they continue with their Passover preparations, and then we come in on Thursday, which we now call Maundy Thursday, and Maundy is not a word that's just like, well, it's, it's just not a mispronunciation of Monday. We're not confusing the days of the week. It's, it's literally from the Latin word mandatum, which is where we get the word mandate, because Monday Thursday is about a command. In fact, mandatum novum do vo bis, probably pronounced that in just about the worst Alabama accent that I could. It's literally translated from Latin, a new command I give you. Because we know what happened that night on Monday Thursday. They're getting ready to celebrate Passover. They're getting ready to break bread. They're observing the Seder, which is a ceremonial meal in honor of what God had done all the way back in Exodus. This wasn't a new dinner for Jesus and his disciples. This wasn't a a new observance for Jews. They had been doing this all the way since the book of Exodus, celebrating how Moses brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into a promised land. They observed this year after year after year after year, coming into the city, sacrificing an animal and worshiping God because he passed over their homes and attacked Egypt so that they could be set free. So on the evening that Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples, he did something new. He got down and washed their feet. He says, and it's recorded for us in the book of John, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So they celebrated the meal. He explained the significance of of the bread and of the cup. He revealed the identity of the disciple Judas who was going to ultimately betray him. He adjourned that evening late at night into the garden to pray. His disciples took a nap. He prayed some more. And then all of a sudden the soldiers come and they're preparing to arrest Jesus with the high priest and the teachers of the law. They come in to arrest him and then they try him unfairly and then they convict him wrongly. And the Passover custom was for Rome and the religious leaders to release a prisoner in honor of the holiday. And so the same crowds who had at once, at the beginning of the week, just a few days before, shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, our king. They now shout, crucify him, crucify him. Because he didn't live up to the expectation of what they thought was going to go down that week. This man that they called king was now nothing more than shame to them. And so in their own embarrassment, shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we talked about what's happened over the past couple of weeks leading up to this moment, the beating of Jesus, the scourging of Jesus, the nakedness of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus that's now carried up to a hill. And we land this morning in in Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 33. He was beaten, he was tortured, now he was crucified. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud, loud, make note of that loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm chapter 22. And then he says, when some of those standing near, near the cross, take note of that, they, they heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and they filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and they put it on a staff, and they offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, now let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. 
And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. These cries, the, these words that, that Jesus spoke, they're, they're problematic for us, right? They're, they're difficult for us. It's Aramaic words, probably spoken with a Greek accent. It's a little bit like the word about. If you're from Canada, you say about, am I right? Or if you're from Alabama, you say about. Like there's just like a whole difference. And it's literally the same word, but you say it a different way. And if somebody hears your dialect, they may not understand what you're talking about. There's a, a question mark here. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. There's this question mark here. Like did they say this Aramaic phrase in a Greek accent to where the people who were at the foot of the cross didn't quite understand what they were talking about? And they're like, oh, he just mispronounced it. He's calling Elijah. Maybe, I don't know, but... Scripture says that he did it with a loud voice. Scripture says that the people who were near him heard it. My supposition is not that they misheard his quote, but that they were poking just one more last-minute jab to Jesus. You see, the messianic prophecy, one that came from Malachi chapter 4, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. It was fresh on their minds because at Passover, the traditional custom was to count the number of people that were going to be around your table and to pour all the glasses of wine that you would need, but then to pour a fifth one, like to pour an extra one. Like, why are we going to pour an extra one? Like, I only need four. What are you going to give me a different one for? Because they were waiting to somehow see if that was the moment, if that was the year, if that was the day that Elijah came and he took the cup and he drank it because that would have been an indication, oh, yo, the Messiah must be here. Elijah drank the cup and you can find devout Jews today who are still drinking that same cup, pouring that same cup, waiting that same messianic expectation, hoping that Elijah would come. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross, calling out to God saying, why have you forsaken me? And they're poking him, oh, are you calling Elijah? Do you think he's going to come and rescue you? Do you think he's going to come and give one more indication that you're the Messiah that we've been waiting for? He's not here and you're hanging there, so you must not be it. This cry of Jesus is a challenge for us. And even before we understand why he said it, I just want to pause and ask, has this cry from Jesus ever been yours? Have these ever been words that in desperation you've said, that you've called out, that you've felt abandoned? These are one of the seven sayings of Jesus that are recorded on the cross, but I want to know if they've ever been one of the seven sayings of you in your life saying, God, you promised me that you would be here. Where are you at? God, you, you promised that you would sustain me. I don't feel it. God, you, you promised that you would be with me. I don't get it. Maybe in some sort of pain and in some sort of predicament, you've, you've said these words. Maybe you didn't do it with an accent. Maybe you didn't do it in Aramaic. Maybe you didn't do it out loud like Jesus. Maybe you just did it under your breath or inside your heart and you thought, I'm reading the words, but it's fuzzy. I'm hearing the story but it doesn't make sense because what's in here doesn't seem to match up with what's out here or what's in here and, and I don't quite get it. Jesus wasn't confused on the cross. He, he wasn't somehow saying, Elijah, where are you at? I thought you were supposed to come before me and I'm here waiting now. He was literally crying out to God, quoting the Psalms and 
The other problem for us is why would Jesus of all people who was literally one with God ever feel disconnected from God? He must not be God. And then we start to poke all kinds of holes in the gospel story and in the divinity of Jesus and what it actually means. You can frame this whole question mark, God, where are you? In two ways. It might be the cry of abandonment due to pain. You know, in the garden, Jesus prayed that God would take this cup from him. Jesus wasn't asking for a plan B. He knew he was going to have to die. He wasn't begging God for a last-minute do-over. He knew what was coming that day. He wasn't necessarily asking God to take it from him, but to, to bear it with him. The pain of the cross and the scourging of it, the difficulty that he and all of his humanity was going to experience. Psalm chapter 13 says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Maybe you've prayed, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you've prayed these prayers. How long do I have to keep wrestling? How long do I have to keep longing? How long do I have to keep walking with this sorrow? Has this ever been your cry, your specific state of affairs, or your specific state of mind that's rendered you in a position in life where you're crying out to God, does there ever seem to be a moment where the pain is too much? We assume that God will never give us more than we can handle. And we kind of think that that's a verse because in 1 Corinthians it says God will not let you be tested or troubled beyond your ability. But Jesus had said, hey, in this life you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we're left kind of wondering back and forth, like, what's true? Is Is that God will never give me more than I can bear? Because some of you face so much trouble in your life. You're looking at God thinking, well, you have an overinflated sense of what I can bear because this is too much. (laughs) And it all depends on what you think of the word we and what you think of the word handle. God's not going to give us more than we can handle. Is it we, me, and you? Or or is it we, us, and him? Because there's nothing he can't handle. And what does the word handle mean anyway? I think sometimes we think that it means that God's not going to give us anything hard. God's not going to give us anything that we can't handle that's too hard for us. He might give you something that's too hard for you. But he can never give you anything that's too hard for him. Because nothing's too difficult. This, this word, this phrase, this sound of Jesus, and sometimes this sound of us is the cry of abandonment where we just don't feel like we can go on. In some ways, we we remark that it's a cry of brokenness. Not abandonment, but brokenness because of our sin. Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. It's our sin that separates us from him. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is what sin does. It provides a a separation between us and God. And and so we're looking at Jesus. How could he be completely one with God? And that's because nothing about him was ever an affront to God the same way that it is for me and you and, and the same way that it is for him at this moment of the 
cross. Both of these ideas can be the cry of Jesus, and both of these ideas can be the cry of us when we recognize that we can resolve both with only one promise, only one way. It's the promises of Scripture. We're reminded over and over and over through this book that the promise of his, his presence. Deuteronomy 31 is recorded everywhere. It says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. It's quoted and requoted all throughout Scripture as a reminder for us. And it says, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. When we feel abandoned, when we feel rejected, when we feel like we're in a really hard circumstance, what we need to know is that he has gone before us and that he is with us can recognize in those moments when we feel lost and abandoned that God is absolutely right there. The second promise is the one of his propitiation. Propitiation is a, is a big word that's literally found in scripture and it means atoning sacrifice or the expiation of our sin. It says in 1 John 2 too that he, meaning Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world, that Christ's death once and for all was enough. It wasn't the blood of a lamb. It wasn't the blood of a goat. It wasn't the sin that was placed on an animal. It was a sin that was placed on the son. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, God who made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole in that moment, crying out loud, asking God where he was, was the first and only time in his life where Jesus experienced the weight of what it was like to be separated from God because of sin. So I know some of us have had the cry of abandonment. Lord, where are you at? But the question is whether you've ever had the cry of brokenness. Lord, I'm a sinner and I, I need your forgiveness. One of my favorite Old Testament characters, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, is Joseph. Even if you haven't... Um, read the story, you've, you've seen the animated film, right? Okay, it's really good. <laughs> um, and, and it tells the story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons who was hated by his brothers, and they were jealous of him, and so they, they beat him, and they stripped him, and they threw him in a pit, and they sold him to slave traders. He made his way down to Egypt, and they came back with evidence that he had been killed, and Jacob thought his son was dead. And so years and years and years passed by, and you know what happened in the story is that he was a slave, and he rose to prominence in that house, and then he was falsely accused of really bad behavior, and so he was kicked into prison, and then he waited and waited and waited, hoping that his ability to interpret dreams for other people would land him on the other side of the prison cell. Well, eventually, all of Egypt is getting ready to face this incredible famine, and somebody finally remembers, oh, there's this guy, and he's stuck in jail, and he can interpret dreams. Maybe he's still there, and you should ask him what this dream that the Pharaoh kept having, this recurring nightmare was going to be, and Joseph, sure enough, was able to actually come and 
interpret what the dream meant, that the famine was going to be here, and that the best thing that Egypt could do was to position themselves to save food for a bunch of years to prepare for when there were lean years, and he did it. He became second in command of all of Egypt, and he was in charge of the whole economy in order to prepare them for what was going to be a really bad downfall or dip. Listen, I'm not about to talk political, so don't go there, but I'm just talking about Egypt. So like somebody was preparing them for things that were going to be difficult, and in the end, everybody from kind of the known world at the moment had to make their way to Egypt because they were the only ones with food and so naturally Joseph's brothers go there and they figure out that their brother that they sold into slavery their brother that became a prisoner was now elevated to a position of power and they were going to have to humbly go before him hat in hand and beg for food and their assumption was that because of their wickedness he was going to get revenge their assumption was that because of their treachery that he was going to use it to stand in judgment over them. But in Genesis chapter 50, he says, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? We know that there's coming a day when, when there will be a great judgment, but Jesus hanging on the cross was not that day. John three sixteen is a really famous verse. A lot of us memorize it as kids. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John goes on to write that for God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Here's the vision statement, but to save the world through him. Joseph is saying, I'm not sitting in a seat of judgment. I'm offering a gift of salvation. I'm not sitting in a seat of revenge. I'm offering a, a gift of life. Our hindsight vision is, is often 2020. And Joseph told his brothers that day, you intended to harm me? Like you wanted to stick it to me good. You intended this for my demise. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, including the lives of the people who put him there in the first place. So at some point, maybe the religious leaders are going to be able to see clearly. Maybe it's going to stop being fuzzy, and, and what they'll come to understand is, although they intended to harm Jesus, Although they intended to get rid of Jesus, all they intended to eliminate Jesus, God intended it for good. The saving of many lives, including the lives of the people who put him there. The purpose of this cross that he hung on is the salvation of sinners. And it says it in your notes this morning, even if you miss another blank, don't miss this one. And we're all chiefs. Every last one of us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Well, pause right there. <laughs> this is a trustworthy saying that, that, that deserves full acceptance. Believe this about the Bible. See this clearly about the Bible. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Side note, of which I am the worst. Paul's words to Timothy can be the very punctuation of my life and yours. I can say to my kids, hey guys, here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world, down a cross in order to save sinners, and your dad's the worst. 
you guys can say it to your family and friends. Hey, hey roommates, hey friends, hey brother, like Christ Jesus came into the world to die on the cross to save people from their sins. My name's Elizabeth and I'm the worst. Like, like you can say that, like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. My name's Craig and I'm the worst. And then we can kind of get into a little bit of an, of an argument, not like a mean argument where we're putting one another down, but like this kind of like humble argument. We're saying, no, I'm the worst. 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 And we literally take on the persona of Paul in this moment where every single one of us, regardless of how far we've ever felt or how abandoned we've ever felt or how lost we've ever felt or how trashy we've ever, like, Regardless of it all, we can say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst one there is. The problem with our perception of sin, how fuzzy it gets sometimes, is that we always default to seeing somebody else as worse than us. And as long as we can minimize our sin and who we are, we can't recognize the full weight of why Christ died and why he cried, God, God, why have you forsaken me? The very first step in experiencing salvation is to see and to feel and to recognize plainly the weight of your own sin. So maybe just take a moment under your breath or on your paper write it down well the list is too long Pastor Nick, amen we talked about wrath and anger, we talked about greed and gluttony and lust and pride we talked about the idea of sin and shame in our lives And until you can see clearly what that is in you, you can't see clearly the cross that was erected for you and died on for you. See, because of Jesus, there is now no separation. You can look back at Mark and and you can figure out how that happened. It says with a loud cry in verse 37, Jesus breathed his last. And what are the very next words? The curtain of the temple. The thing that separated the worshipers from the holy of holies and the innermost altar and the place where people worshiped God, the place that only the high priest was allowed to enter like once a year. They had to tie a rope around his leg to pull him out because if he died and stayed in there too long, they couldn't go in and get him for sure because that was a place that nobody entered. The curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You and I didn't start the rip. God did that with the death of his son. It's literally the death of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made that created a moment where you and I could now no longer experience any separation in our lives from God. The temple was torn. And then do you see what happened after that? It it says in verse 39, and when the centurion, Roman soldier, the guy who had probably beat him, the guy who had probably like um, bet money on whether or not they got to keep his clothes, the guy who was there watching him be ridiculed and participating in his execution, who stood there in front of Jesus when he saw how he died. Underline that phrase in your Bibles. When he saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son 
of God. It was the death of Jesus that progressed in this guy's life that showed him who Jesus really was. It doesn't say that the centurion saw the empty tomb and believed. It said he saw the death of Jesus and he understood. I think we a lot of times can get really sucked into the cry of Jesus and whether or not it's ever been yours. God, why did you abandon me? God, why did you let me do that? God, why did you let me have that happen to me? God, why did you, man, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't recognize you anymore. I don't understand what's going on. I feel abandoned. Like, like the, the, the cry of Jesus sometimes resonates with us, but I want to know, has the cry of the Roman always been yours? It's one thing to cry out, God, God, where are you? Why did you leave me? It's another to cry out, Jesus, he really is the son of God. He's it. He saw it and he took Jesus's death and saw who God was so clearly. It was Christ in his place, the death of Jesus in his place that offered that guy salvation if you skip down to verse 44, it was eventually reported to Pilate. We talked about him the first week. He's the governor of the province that was ultimately responsible for Jesus being convicted and crucified. It says Pilate, in verse 44, was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. We talked about how crucifixion would sometimes take six hours and it would sometimes take six days. He was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion maybe the same guy that had just believed that it was so, he, he gave the body to Joseph. There's a difference between confirming that Jesus died and understanding why Jesus died. The centurion got it. We're still wondering about Pilate. When it comes to faith in Jesus, some of you got there real quickly. You didn't even notice it. You just, it cleared up. God's good gift was crystal, and you understood it. And for some of you, you're still trying to figure out, can I believe? Can I trust? Can this be real? Is God there for me? Will he, in fact, forgive me? I hope that his death and the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his life sums it up for you. I hope that these words can be like a progressive lens and help you understand what this word says. That the Lord can open our eyes and help us see and understand why Jesus came. And that the Lord can open our mouths and help us publicly declare and proclaim clearer than ever the power of his name and the power of his life. Thank you for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If this podcast episode has blessed you in some way, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so that you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. 
See you next time and God bless.